Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Hello all, once again this is another repeat episode of uh, From Rules to Reality, so I'm still working on, on a range of different projects at the moment. Um, I spoke about a report I'm writing last week. Um, it's, uh, well, excuse, I say hello to my little friend, uh, Hal, who uh, regularly interrupts uh, these episodes. So I'm working on a human rights and mental health regulatory framework at the moment, or as I like to call it, the Hermherf. Um, so that'll come out in the middle of the year. But again, I wanted to repeat an episode as we're coming into the election. And this is with Emeritus Professor Terry Carney on the cataclysmic moral, political, and legal failure, and actually, as we discuss here, regulatory failure, robo-debt. I hope you enjoy I hope you keep it in mind um, as you cast your ballot on May 21. All right, we'll make a start then. Um, all right, thanks so much, uh, Terry, for, for joining me today. Um, I'm interested to know from you know, your wide background working in um, mental health, um, regulation and governance, law, um, why do you think uh, regulation uh, matters to the community and why does it matter to you? Yeah, well, in a way, my um, interest is broader than regulation um, as such in that um, my main focus is on um, the gap between what is promised by... Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Hello all, once again, this is another repeat episode of uh, From Rules to Reality. So I'm still working on on a range of different projects at the moment. Um, I spoke about a report I'm writing last week. Um, It's, uh, well, excuse, I say hello to my little friend, uh, Hal, who uh, regularly interrupts. Uh, these episodes. So I'm working on a human rights and mental health regulatory framework at the moment, or as I like to call it, the Hermherf. Um, so that'll come out in the middle of the year. But again, I wanted to repeat an episode as we're coming into the election. And this is with Emeritus Professor Terry Carney on the cataclysmic moral, political and legal failure. And actually, as we discuss here, regulatory failure, robo-debt. I hope you enjoy I hope you keep it in mind um, as you cast your ballot on May 21. All right, we'll make a start then. Um, all right, thanks so much, uh, Terry, for, for joining me today. Um, I'm interested to know from you know, your wide background working in um, mental health, um, regulation and governance, law, um, 
why do you think uh, regulation uh, matters to the community and why does it matter to you? Yeah, well, in a way, my um, interest is broader than regulation um, as such, in that um, my main focus is on um, the gap between what is promised by law or by a government program on the one hand and uh, what it delivers um, on the other. And they're often at odds with each other. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, we deliver uh, little of what is promised or um, have unintended uh, consequences. So um, the regulatory um, portfolio is a, is, a, is a wide one for me. So you were mentioning the work I've done over the years uh, and, um, you know, the one of those projects looked at um, the role of law in uh, mental health, uh, mental health tribunals in setting a boundary, if you like, between um, the around the imposition or not of uh, involuntary detention and or involuntary treatment. And I mean, that's a very important civil uh, rights protective role of regulation in that context. But uh, out of the uh, fieldwork we did, um, what we discovered is that of even greater importance to people um, than whether they're detained against their will or not, treated against their will or not, uh, were things like um, a medication regime and the ability to have a, an equal dialogue uh, with um, medical, with psychiatrists and medical practitioners about what that uh, medication regime involved. Uh, and we also discovered um, a very, very high interest in, understandably, in uh, whether people had housing, whether they had jobs, what kind of social life they lived. So that's an example of, um, I guess, the, uh, the breadth of issues that, um, that interest me in the regulatory space. Hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I'm right, um, I remember when I entered um, uh, as a baby into this space, probably six, six or so years ago, reading that, that book that was in, was that in 2009 or 2013 that you released a book on, on tribunals, didn't you? Between uh, 2011, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, and it disappoints me that, I mean, uh, most of my experiences in mental health and human rights issues around that, many of the issues that you wrote about in 2011 are, haven't progressed at all, um, certainly in Victoria um, in the last 10 years. So, um, I mean, that's a failure of regulatory oversight in, in, to some degree, I feel, um, this complex complex dimensions but yeah many yeah. of the issues that that you raise still remain issues yeah mm. so i know one of the areas um uh, one of the many areas that you've written on um are uh, um is the commonwealth government's online compliance intervention policy or what we um generally call robo debt um so that came into effect in um, 2016 um but um some people might not be across what the policy was about or how it came about. Would you be able to explain a bit about that? Yeah, well, it was an initiative that was um, foreshadowed in a smaller way um, around the Christmas before the scheme um, was 
attracting any public attention uh, in 2016. And it was a scheme, an idea that was ramped up um, really uh, principally in order to fill a budget uh, black hole um, uh, that uh, became apparent just before a federal election. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so the um, amount of revenue that was anticipated to be recouped from robo-debt, which um, really involved a, a simple um, expansion of an existing program and the automation of, it, of that program. So what was that program? Well, um, for 20 years or so, um, uh, Centrelink uh, uh, in administering um, the calculation about what uh, amount of benefit a person or pension a person should receive each fortnight uh, would from time to time match um, the information that people supplied about their earnings or other income uh, with tax office records. And um, in just around 7% um, um, of those um, cross-matching of data from the tax office and Centrelink, um, there would be a, an apparent discrepancy. I say an apparent discrepancy because the tax office um, aggregated information over a full year or six months, whereas for Centrelink purposes, um, the rate calculation um, is a fortnight by fortnight calculation. So uh, unless people had a stable income and very few people um, on Centrelink payments have stable casual uh, or part-time uh, earnings, um, there would be a, a significant difference between uh, the six months or 12 months, the average from the tax office and um, the um, fortnight by fortnight Centrelink calculation. Well, what used to happen in the past in those 7% of the data matches that you know, appeared to uh, be problematic was that a Centrelink um, uh, public servant would um, investigate to see whether the discrepancy was a real discrepancy or not. What, what uh, um, the online compliance system did was move from 7% to 100% and take the human being out. That's the, the long and the short of it. Uh, in other words, it, it assumed that in every uh, one of those data match instances that the, um, that the average spoke to its constituent parts um, um, or putting it another way that, the, uh, that in every one of those cases, those people had a stable source of income fortnight by fortnight over the whole of the uh, uh, six or 12 month period and therefore all of the monies that um, you know they'd been paid uh, uh, on some other basis <laughs> um, was an overpayment and recoverable without any further inquiry. Mm. Yeah and um, uh, my apologies to the listeners but the um, someone has literally just started a blower out the um, out the, the side of my window right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, maybe that's the Commonwealth government seeking to undermine um, this <laughs> podcast. Um, uh, and so, practically speaking, did that over um, did that overestimate um, the uh, 
both the amount that any individual um, likely owed and then the number of individuals um, that owed something to, to Centrelink. Oh, yeah, dramatically. Um, for, for, for some uh, other reasons, in, apart from just that an average doesn't tell you anything about uh, the components of that average, uh, there is also a kind of a, an income bank that uh, helps to smooth out uh, from fortnight to fortnight, allows a carry forward um, of an under uh, claim in a previous fortnight so that uh, in a later fortnight when you do have more earnings, uh, you don't get the full penalty uh, reduction amount. You're able to um, offset uh, uh, with the carry forward of the uh, monies that you didn't claim from the from previous fortnights. So yeah, and uh, really quite dramatic. The uh, some debts uh, were you know the order of twenty thousand, fifteen thousand, ten thousand um, dollars supposed debts. And uh, when you did the got the information that enabled you to do um, a fortnight by fortnight calculation and you get that information uh, by um, asking uh, an applicant to provide their pay slips or given that most people wouldn't have kept their pay slips because they went back a very long way um, into the uh, early uh, 2010s. Um, it, the power to uh, require uh, the legislative power that Centrelink has that enables it to uh, compel um, an employer to provide uh, payslip data to uh, the government. Uh, when those um, proper inquiries were done, um, these debts of you know ten thousand dollars would uh, either drop to zero, and that was about half of them uh, would prove not to be any debt at all. Um, or if there was a debt, it would be in the a few hundred dollars. And that um, few hundred dollars would be due to the uh, sort of slippage uh, or uh, small discrepancy between the fortnight for which a person is paid on the one hand and the Centrelink um, uh, fortnightly calculation of rate. Um, if they didn't fully align, um, then just being a day or two out in the way people were reporting their income would, um, would uh, over time, uh, uh, build up a small debt, but, but nothing of the thousands of dollars that uh, often was the case um, yeah. with uh, robo-debt. And we all, I mean, I, I certainly got mine reduced from 2500 to $60, and I know many other people in similar situations. Yes. Um, ultimately... Uh, the policy was found to be unlawful. Um, so, I mean, um, could you explain why and any other why it was unlawful, and I guess any other reflections that you have on the policy, either legislative or just whether it was good policy or not? Well, it was obviously very bad policy, but uh, not least because it was unlawful, as um, you foreshadowed. Uh, why was it unlawful? Because in the case of social security overpayments. Uh, the law says it's a debt uh, if and only if, and that's what the uh, parliament <laughs> uh, wrote, if and only if a section of the Act makes it a debt. Um, and uh, that meant that the, uh, it was only a debt if you had uh, information 
uh, for each and every fortnight of the period in question. And by definition, the tax office uh, uh, average uh, didn't supply that. Uh, the second reason that was unlawful is that um, the uh, full federal court a long time ago had said, uh, and not only must it be proven on a fortnight by fortnight basis, uh, under the Act, but uh, the onus of proof, the responsibility for establishing that there's a debt lies with the Commonwealth, lies with Centrelink. And uh, RoboDebt <laughs> um, just spat out the average to people and said, you know, here's your $10,000 debt, um, uh, uh, prove that it's not a debt. It, it, it shifted the onus of proof onto um, the Centrelink client when it, it always uh, was a a responsibility of the uh, of the government to prove that so is that, heard, a, is that a common law principle just on is that a so that's common law and um, that's not written into the statute is it or that was a common law um ruling of uh, a three a full court of the um federal court of uh of australia and the third bit that was part and parcel of it uh, was a ruling of the High Court a very, very long time ago, almost 70 odd or so years ago, uh, that said when, when you're um, seeking to prove something that uh, has serious moral and other practical connotations, um, like you're a debtor, <laughs> you've done something uh, wrong, <laughs> and and uh, not only are you uh, morally uh, therefore tainted, um, this is something that credit agencies and even uh, professional admission bodies, um, a lawyer seeking uh, admission to practice um, must address um, uh, whether they have a Centrelink debt, and if so, the basis of that debt in order to show that they're uh, fit to, <laughs> uh, to be uh, a practising solicitor or a barrister. Um, so what the, what the High Court said, uh, you know, 70 or more years ago about those sorts of things is that they, not only is it the Commonwealth's uh, responsibility to, to prove it, but uh, you need more than just uh, uh, proving it on the balance of probabilities. Um, it's not. It's not like uh, uh, finding a person uh, responsible uh, for a crime, you know, proof beyond reasonable doubt. But you need um, you need uh, positive, tangible proofs um, and of a of a reasonable uh, credibility. Um, and of course, all that um, Centrelink was doing in RoboDebt. Uh, was just allowing an inference that because there was a difference between what the tax office said was your average <clears throat> income that employers had paid you over the last six to 12 months on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, what you in uh, each fortnight had been telling Centrelink were your earnings, um, that the inference was that, uh, yeah, there was a debt this was sufficient proof of that uh, uh, debt. And uh, look, it didn't, it, it didn't pass the pub test or <laughs> anything approaching the pub test uh, of lawyers uh, on any of those counts. Um, they were using the wrong test. Um, they were um, putting the onus of uh, disproof onto the applicant and they were applying the wrong standard um, of proof, an inadequate standard of proof. Mm. And, and there was, from my understanding, well, I mean, the. Uh, anecdotally, there's been reports of 
the harm that 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 social policy has caused people who are already in marginalised um, places, you know, um, on on payments and uh, have no capacity to 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 repay the amount that they were alleged to have taken. And um, there there were questions, if I'm not correct, that it didn't actually generate or raise the money that, um, well, probably because it was unlawful and that money wasn't. Um, uh, wasn't lawfully acquired, but it hasn't been successful even based on the objective it had. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Um, in some ways, it was a, a slow burn um, revenue raiser or <laughs> a, um, recouping of um, a quote unquote monies that shouldn't ever have been paid out in the past. Um, but the um, uh, Budget uh, papers uh, at different times actually estimated that there would be um, very significant, um, in ordinary terms, outside a COVID uh, crisis, uh, amounts of revenue. At the end of the day, um, it cost $1.8 billion um, for the government to, uh, once the class action and other litigation uh, told them <laughs> correctly that uh, it was unlawful and it had to be fixed, uh, that, that cost at, at least $1.8 um, billion. Uh, that's on the public record. Uh, there may have been additional costs that aren't part and parcel of that um, rectification um, uh, figure internal because about half of all Centrelink staff for about nine months, um, some hundreds of people were um, <laughs> at work, fully at work uh, to establish how many of these unlawful debts there were, how much money had been incorrectly raised against people so that it could be repaid. But the forward projections in the uh, in the federal budget, which go out three years from the uh, year of the budget when it's brought down, um, put the put the um, uh, estimates of how much this was going to raise at around the four to five billion dollars, um, and um, by the time robo debt was stopped in its tracks. Um, only, um, you know, something under a billion dollars had actually been recovered, about three quarters of a billion dollars. And um, <clears throat> the pressure um, that um, uh, public uh, uh, campaigns and the legal um, litigation had begun to bring to bear had caused um, Centrelink to have to bring some human beings, more human beings, back into the process of trying to establish uh, whether there were debts or not. And as a consequence, the administrative um, uh, costs of running the whole program uh, had started to rise significantly. And uh, so it had raised uh, some money uh, for government, but uh, nothing uh, of the order that they had uh, originally hoped for. So, I mean, colossal policy failure, um, both in terms of its lawfulness, social consequences and achieving the stated objectives. Um, but we, I mean, particularly with regards to the question of lawfulness, we have so many checks and balance. Well, we're told we have so many checks and balances in place in Australia to prevent this kind of thing happening. How do you think, um, and firstly, you know, could you explain what, what some of those are or, or um, 
ostensibly are and, and how this got through that, how these, this policy got through those checks and balances. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, it is really ironic um, because um, in the 1970s, before any of these checks and balances were uh, legislated or um, developed as administrative processes, uh, there was a, a famous case called Green and Daniels that uh, were um, really old-fashioned, um, you know, centuries-old, complicated and difficult to manoeuvre um, writs <laughs> were the only way um, that you could test um, the lawfulness of a, uh, an issue like this, uh, and you could only test it in the High Court of Australia. And in the Green and Daniels case, what government had done was uh, just uh, announce a policy that uh, school leavers were no longer going to qualify over the long summer um, uh, break for unemployment benefits uh, without changing the law. Well, I enjoyed those. Yeah. <laughs> it only took, um, you know, a number of months um, for the successful <laughs> old-fashioned um, uh, crude remedy um, uh, justice to be uh, obtained in the High Court um, declaring that that uh, policy was unlawful. Uh, by contrast, you know, bringing robo-debt to heel took, um, you know, two and a half years or so. Um, and as you say, a whole variety of checks and balances that were designed to, you know, um, avoid the need to go off to the High Court in the way that happened in Green and Daniels, all failed totally. So what were some of them? Well, um, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal didn't exist at the time that um, of Green and Daniels in the 1970s. Um, and um, why did it fail? Well, it failed because the government uh, quite blatantly, quite deliberately, and by government I mean um, uh, senior, senior and not so senior people within the department, uh, and um, I'm certain uh, with enough knowledge of government ministers and others of what was happening, uh, the, the system was gamed. Um, how was it gamed? Well, when you first, um, there are two levels of appeal in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal in Social Security Matters. And at the first level, um, the hearing is uh, in camera. Um, the public is not uh, admitted. And um, the decision, although there are written decisions, is not published um, publicly um, in the same way that it is if either you being unhappy or the department being unhappy goes to the next level to try to overturn what the first level has done. Well, we know that there were 77 or so from the litigation um, the disclosure um, cases where um, very um, full rulings by the first level of the AAT explained that um, the debt was unlawful and was not um, uh, able to be recovered. What happened in those 77 cases is that um, Centrelink just quietly accepted the unlawfulness and uh, 
um, um, expunged the debt, uh, but did nothing to uh, alter the policy. Now, um, at common law and under um, administrative uh, instruments, um, all governments, including the Commonwealth government, um, uh, purport to subscribe to being a model litigant. Um, and um, uh, what a model litigant um, uh, should have done after the first few cases was one of two things. Either say, look, we think the AAT is wrong in saying it's unlawful, we want to test this uh, by going up through the system. Uh, or if they weren't prepared to do that, and they did not ever appeal any one of those 77, <laughs> um, then they should have um, uh, revisited their policy uh, to ensure that it was lawful. Now, uh, you know, that didn't happen because the system was able to be gained. Um, the Ombudsman looked at uh, RoboDebt uh, twice. On neither occasion did did the Ombudsman ask the law question, at, at least not publicly. Um, it appears that there were private um, uh, queries put to Centrelink about the lawfulness of robo-debt. And um, my understanding is that the answer that uh, the Commonwealth at Centrelink gave was, uh, yes, it's lawful. To my question and your question, well, you know, did the Ombudsman ask to, uh, uh, for an elaboration of on what basis it was, uh, you know, lawful or ask even better for a copy of the legal um, uh, opinion that uh, pronounced its lawfulness? Uh, no, they did not. Why did they not do that? Uh, because uh, of what in the policy sense we would say is policy uh, is regulatory capture. Um, the, um, Could you answer, explain what that is? Could, yeah, uh, well, that uh, <laughs> it's, I guess, expressed in um, a paraphrase of apparently uh, um, what uh, the Ombudsman gave as the reason or its staff for not uh, pursuing the lawfulness of the question. They said, uh, we want to keep our uh, agencies, in this case, Services Australia, Centrelink, et cetera, uh, on side. We want to keep a good working relationship um, with our department. Uh, when that kind of thing comes at the price of your failure to um, expose and uh, provide for the correction of an unlawful scheme that imposed, um, you know, somewhere between one and two billion dollars of uh, non-debts on uh, around half a million Centrelink, um, about 450 whatever thousand Centrelink uh, clients, um, you've got to ask yourself uh, the question about the morality and appropriateness of that. And, I mean, it, it demonstrates uh, the reality of regulatory capture and uh, the, uh, how harmful. I mean, you know, as academics or, you know, whatever, we just, you know, you can sort of talk about a concept like regulatory capture and you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, that, that sort of pulls one or two teeth out of uh, uh, the mouth of, 
a few fangs from the mouth of the of the regulator regulator but you know it's it's still going to be a pretty effective reg regulator surely you know we live in australia um you know we're not a, a third world country or whatever um well here um it totally uh negated that key um check and balance regulatory function of the ombudsman i mean surely if <laughs> if nothing else uh they ought to be uh, able to at least expose to public gaze the legality or otherwise, the potential legality or otherwise uh, of a, a large uh, government program. And, and those agencies, um, you know, and this it really goes back to, to the first point you raise or your motivation in doing this work, which is the gap between the law and people's lived experience of the law, you know, that these agencies were put in place to, to protect the marginalised and provide a far more accessible, low-cost or um, less administratively burdensome um, means to protect their rights. But there's just been a bankrupt failure in this situation. Um, uh I mean, how do you how do you think agencies arrive at? I mean, clearly, if you look, you know, if, uh, I, I'm not so familiar with Commonwealth Ombudsman, more a Victorian context. But if you look at their legislative functions, I'm sure it would it would have um, a lot. It would have logically required them to do the things that you say. How do you how do you think a regulator arrives at that point um, uh, where where the where they come to value the relationship with the people they're regulating more than the the, nest, the functions that they have. Look, it's uh, you know part and parcel, I guess, of uh, moving in the circles of power. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, everyone is susceptible to uh, um, yeah, not having not having your antennae um, you know raised <laughs> fully all the time and being sort of alert to. Um, the unconscious in, um, you know, it, it is uh, principally drift that, that happens over time as you become, you know, uh, de facto more attuned to, yeah, the, the big boys and girls uh, of the agencies and less to the, um, um, you know, vulnerable ordinary citizen who, who you probably are not having uh, any um, human contact with. Um, yes, you know, the Ombudsman gets, uh, you know, lots and lots of complaints, but, you know, they're, they're uh, in writing, you're talking to people on the phone principally. So the, the whole lot of those sorts of processes, um, you know, that, that account for it. Um, and, you know, look, it's not helped by the fact that uh, virtually no lawyer in the country um, knows anything about social security law. And that was actually exemplified. And, and so, you know, there, there, there would be a question uh, about whether the uh, staff of the Ombudsman actually ever looked at the sections of the Act that, um, you know, uh, provide that it's a debt if and only if <laughs> uh, the Act says it's a debt and the provision that says, uh, you know, it's a debt if the money you got in that fortnight 
uh, is, uh, you know, was based on <laughs> um, an income amount for that fortnight that proved not to be, uh, you know, fully accurate. Um, you know, did they look at, at that? Probably not. Um, did that? And and if they didn't do the research, um, you know, they wouldn't have known that the standard there for social security is um, superior to that which applies in the ordinary uh, debt context. I mention that because um, you know of the other agencies that didn't detect the problem, uh, parliamentary committees of the federal parliament. They they the closest they got was when. Um, the South Australian Law Society um, uh, made a submission to the Parliamentary Committee saying, uh, look, in ordinary debt issues, um, uh, you know, you'd, you'd need a, a bit more proof or a bit better procedure than the one um, that um, RoboDebt was, um, you know, running with. Um, now, the South Australian Law Society, likewise, uh, didn't know about, uh, didn't look at the, the provisions of the Act, didn't know about the issue about who bore the, the onus of proof, um, and uh, didn't know um, that it was a higher standard of proof. Well, you know, you can't uh, blame them in a sense, because, as I say, virtually no lawyer in the country um, learns uh, any part of the law about social security um, and um, there's hardly any you know business for the legal profession outside the uh, welfare rights centers and mm. uh, a few legal aid contexts um, you know they they're, they're not exposed to legislation that um, runs to uh, around two or three thousand pages Mm. Uh, of printed enactments. I mean, if 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 you never um, uh, trained uh, in your undergraduate uh, course, uh, and you don't get any of that kind of work um, over the uh, you know course of your professional career, unlike say tax, which is of a similar complexity, similar uh, volumes of of law in um, on the statute book, in decisions of tribunals, in decisions of courts. You know, I mean, most lawyers, uh, you know, have at least a smattering of knowledge about tax. Mm. But by contrast, hardly anybody um, uh, knows knows even the, the fundamentals of um, social security. So. Um, you know, in answer to your question, um, that is part of the, the reason why why these check and balance agencies have failed in this instance. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like to me like it's a series of Swiss cheese, um, you know, uh, pieces of Swiss cheese lined up and all of them, all of the holes needed to be lined up for a policy like this to, uh, to get through. And um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, where, what, year and a half, two years, I don't, COVID time has skewed my brain. <laughs> but um, a while ago, we had the judgment, um, uh, finding it's lawful, unlawful. Um, I don't know, do you think we're in a better place to prevent this kind of policy happening again? And, um, you know, if not, what kinds of things do you think we we need to put in place um, as governments and communities and, and a legal profession to, um, to pre prevent this happening again? 
Look, I think uh, the public service um, has, if you like, learnt, learnt the lesson um, of RoboDebt. There's now, um, within Services Australia, there's um, a bit under a dozen uh, new um, competent um, on-the-ball employees, public servants, who are addressing um, what the processes should be in the future in uh, rolling out, consulting about um, refining um, the use of uh, any artificial intelligence um, in, in government administration. I mean, in a way, RoboDebt wasn't even proper <laughs> AI. It was just, a, a, um, you know, the mistake of um, thinking that an apple is an orange, uh, you know, that a, <laughs> something about uh, your fortnightly income, uh, the apple, <laughs> uh, can be, um, you know, um, dealt with by looking at what an orange uh, six-month to 12-month average uh, uh, income is about. So, you know, it, it was just a, um, a really a fundamentally simple, basic mismatch of, uh, of data, really. Um, the data wasn't, the one wasn't commensurate with the other. Um, uh, yes, it, it um, when humans uh, made the decision about whether to, whether it really was a debt by spending hours using their powers to get the information that was really needed following the sort of suspicion that was raised by the, the data match, uh, you know, then, then, then the system worked well. Um, and so automating, uh, taking the human being out of that process and saying, oh, well, we'll just let the data match uh, generate a debt, um, you know, it, it is automation, but um, it was hardly artificial intelligence or um, automated decision making in its um, the form that most uh, government departments are now uh, pursuing. So, yeah, to I think that lesson has been learnt. Um, the lesson that um, hasn't been learnt, I think, is and we don't really know. I, I mean, none of us know. We can have all kinds of suspicions about. Um, the black box, uh, which is the way RoboDebt um, was developed within the bureaucracy, um, considered up through the ranks, taken to cabinet, adopted, uh, and then subsequently monitored by ministers and secretaries of departments and so on. Um, the Box is not absolutely totally black. There are just little pinpoints of light that shed a little bit of uh, light on the question of um, that process. For example, there were standard risk assessment um, uh, protocols that were completed at a low level of the bureaucracy that um, appear to flag um, many or at least some of the main concerns that later unfolded with RoboDebt. Um, but even those are ambiguous and were being um, written by more junior and therefore less experienced people. Um, but the whole sort of hollowing out of the public service, um, you know, causes you to ask um, um, whether 
the public service in its current, um, yeah, hollowed out form, any longer has the expertise to be able fully in house um, uh, stress test, uh, you know, um, new policy initiatives on the base on grounds of legality, on grounds of compliance with, um, you know, ethical administration, on grounds of, um, you know, uh, assessing potential impacts on vulnerable communities, people who are less technically um, competent or people who have, uh, you know, don't have um, uh, the sort of smartphones and other tech that, um, you know, the majority of the community take for granted. Um, it is starting to be uh, uh, doubtful as to whether that uh, uh, capacity um, exists or is whether the lesson that it needs to be injected around the, this small team in Services Australia that I mentioned, whether, whether they alone <laughs> are going to be capable of uh, ensuring that the next time a, a policy like this is being contemplated uh, in government, that it's done properly. Um, you'd hope so, but um, you can't, uh, can't, can't be absolutely confident. And the other part of the black box, <clears throat> I mean, we do know that um, the two advice teams within um, Centrelink that considered those 77 um, rulings, at least, that uh, robo-debt was unlawful, I mean, they're lawyers, um, so the capacity exists there, um, it did exist at the time and continues to exist. So there's a question, how come uh, that uh, the advice team, uh, uh, if it concluded either way, that yes, the tribunal was correct in as the law, as the courts have later vindicated in saying it's unlawful, we better do something to uh, tell the services people to uh, redesign the scheme to make it lawful or ask the parliament to pass legislation to give it a legal foundation or something. Uh, and if they took the opposite view, why did they not pass that over to the, um, uh, the litigation team uh, to launch uh, a challenge either in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or in the federal court? To, uh, to vindicate their uh, position. Um, now, um, the shroud of secrecy uh, has been thrown over that as well. Mm. And um, no, no, I mean, the questions have been asked by parliamentary committees, but um, the uh, uh, bureaucracy and government has, you know, avoided <laughs> answering any of those questions. That's... Mm. Those are the sorts of areas that have caused people to uh, say we need a Royal Commission uh, to open the black box to the light mm. so that we could see how well or poorly the policy development process mm. and or those processes of how you respond to adverse external rulings of tribunals, you know, mm how well or poorly those work, so that, you know, you could um, <laughs> uh, have greater confidence that um, um, reforms and changes were made, um, you know, so that 
we didn't encounter that sort of thing in the future. Um, yeah, and do you think, um, uh, and do you think that, uh, you know, I know the, the Australian auditor, national auditor, there were two the auditor general, auditor general, yeah, um, and uh, and the ombudsman. Do you think that they've learned lessons from this process? Do you think that if we were to have a repeated policy, get through all of those um, early checks and balances and still be an issue, that it would be responded to differently by those two oversight agencies? I'm not sure that it would. Um, and so the question is, well, what are some of the changes that might need uh, to be contemplated in order to provide greater confidence that um, <laughs> um, we wouldn't see um, uh, this replicated in the future? Uh, one of them would be that I think parliamentary oversight committees um, I should as a routine uh, question uh, of the Ombudsman in relation to its reports, um, have as a standing sort of question, uh, did you um, inquire um, as to the legality of this program? Were there any issues, you know, if they're not there discussed on the face of the, um, of the uh, report that the Ombudsman has handed down, has published. Um, with the ability to um, uh, game the AAT by not appealing adverse decisions, um, the remedy there requires a balance be struck. Um, it's a very good thing that the vulnerable um, uh, clientele, particularly in social security, um, where there are high rates of mental illness and uh, other vulnerability uh, markers, uh, have their hearing conducted um, in camera. Um, so the remedy there, I think, is that um, uh, the AAT senior leadership um, should exercise a power that it already has to publish de-identified, um, you know, kind of landmark leading decisions. Um, I, I would have, I have absolute confidence in the integrity uh, of uh, senior AAT um, deputy presidents and presidents and th there's those sorts of processes that, um, had they been uh, alert to and um, had there been a, a history of previous history prior to RoboDebt um, of publishing some of those uh, decisions, I've got no doubt that that would have been done. Um, uh, I mean, I handed down what appears to be the, uh, the country's first invalidation um, and um, it was one where um, the department was put on full notice of the kinds of issues that um, I thought were in play about the legality or illegality of uh, robo-debt. Um, they provided uh, written um, submissions that um, failed to engage at all because, of, I mean, it was indefensible and <laughs> their written submissions, uh, I'm afraid, uh, made that pretty transparent, as did the fact that they uh, declined my invitation 
uh, to appear before me uh, and provide oral argument uh, and discussion. I would have found that intimidating too, though, Terry, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, look, uh, had, had my decision uh, been uh, published or one of the others, uh, other excellent decisions that other members gave, um, you know, the, um, the floor, you know, yeah. however it arose, I, I mean, you know, as, as the class... Uh, a judgment said, you know, Justice Murphy, when it's a when it's a choice between a, a stuff up and a conspiracy, you know, mm. go for the stuff up every time. And basically, mm. that's what you know. In November last year, in the set in settling the class action and the reasons for uh, that, the judge gave for um, you know accepting the settlement. Mm. Uh, that's 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 there on the face of the reasons, you know, that that that. Um, you know, stuff happens, <laughs> bad stuff happens, mm, mm. Uh, you, you know, and really the, you, you can't ever, you know, no administration, no individual is anything like perfect, mm. uh, you know, and we can make really egregious, you know, after the event, really stupid looking, incompetent, you know, whatever, how, how could you possibly have thought mm, done mm. that? Mm. The trick is, um, you know, and that's what the whole accountability machinery and regulatory machinery is, is about, is early detection and correction of yeah. those kinds of um, egregious or not so egregious mistakes. Um, yeah. And so the real, the real concern about RoboDebt is that it was able to be um, kept on foot for, you know, whatever it was two yeah. or so years beyond uh, when it really ought to have um, uh, been sorted out. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was an open lie for, for a long time. And, it, yeah, like you say, it is, everybody was quite aware. And I think there were quite a few cases that couldn't get up at various points in time for the gaming reasons that you, that you spoke about. And um, a lot of lives were destroyed in that time as well, or people placed in marginalised or vulnerable situations because of that, yeah. Yes, I mean, the uh, the class action that I was referring to um, was, you know, November last year, and uh, the second of the two Victoria Legal Aid individual challenges um, was uh, 12 months before that. Mm. Um, the That was the second of two challenges. The first one fell over at the last minute because arguably, again, it was gained. Mm. Um, you know, as it was about to come on for hearing, uh, the Commonwealth exercised a power to expunge the debt in question in the first of the um, federal court challenges. Mm. Um, they could have done the same with the one, <laughs> you know, November before <laughs> last mm. Mm. Uh, as well. Uh, and they only um, chose not to do it because um, uh, while they agreed that there was no debt, they didn't want to pay interest on the money that the person, the litigant, um, you know, had lost. Uh, during the time that the debt amount had been um, held by the Commonwealth mm, mm. <laughs> uh, rather than by the false debtor, mm. uh, you know, who would have spent or otherwise, uh, you know, gained interest or whatever on the money. Yeah. And so it was a, <laughs> a fortuitous in a way 
um, that um, because of a concern about really the pin money aspect of pin money side of um, uh, of robo debt, that uh, the Commonwealth dug in its heels and said, "Oh no, we will um, we'll allow this one to um, you know proceed." And then, of course, um, um, when I say they allowed it to proceed, <laughs> um, when it came the day before it was um, the first hearing was uh, scheduled, uh, um, the Commonwealth totally folded its tent and uh, um, settled, conceded everything, mm. knowing, of course, that mm. uh, it it didn't have any leg legal or uh, legal leg that could possibly defend uh, the case that, you know, had been, those two cases had been brewing for um, uh, just on a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, it, it, I guess it is, you're making a compelling case there for a Royal Commission because there's just this long line of, of, um, of failures that, that lead to a scenario like that and it is, you know, like you say, some things have been learnt and changed, but a lot of the same underlying conditions aren't uh, aren't addressed, and probably ones that we don't know that are in that black box. Um, uh, you, you've given uh, the listeners a um, a really rich understanding of, I guess, the um, uh, the social policy failures, the regulatory policy failures um, in robo debt. Um, what's one thing that you want them to do um, after listening to he listening to you here today? <laughs> well, I think they should uh, principally uh, add their voice to a royal commission or some other systemic inquiry, because I guess the bottom line, uh, you know, message from me is that it's a failure of governance. Um, a failure of the quality of governance in the development of new policy initiatives. That's that's where the um, you know where I point the finger, and uh, I again I think it's largely one um, without fault. It's I believe a byproduct of stripping uh, over two or three decades um, what was and still is. A, a good public service uh, by international standards of so many of its top brains and people mm. leaving it uh, at a point where um, no matter how well it tries or how well government ministers in, in seeking to oversight development of, of uh, policy, um, it, it leads to bad, inadequate, very flawed policy just just because um there are too few people uh you know with the capacity uh to think through uh all of the elements uh, of it and you know um if i'm right in believing that through no fault of its own robo debt um you know is a byproduct of the fact that um, um small government and the um um, economic efficiency, dividends that they have to keep, uh, you know, paying so that you, each year you have to do things with fewer and fewer um, um, 
public servants <laughs> on your books. Um, if, if that's the fault, it's about time, um, you know, we got to the heart of it all and rethought um, either, you know, funding the public service um, more fully or thinking through if, if the public service is not capable of doing this policy development, well, what other, what other processes? Are, are we going to have a policy sort of co-design? Now, there are all kinds of reasons why that might be a good thing. Co-designed, not so much with the private sector <laughs> KPMGs and so on, who do so much of that work now. And, you know, I mean, there's a very wide uh, array of very senior public servants and others, former politicians who are saying uh, too much uh, of the program and policy development is outsourced now to, um, to these private consultancies. Why is it being outsourced? Well, because as the Thody report, the government's own uh, report into the public service said, uh, it's because we're understaffed and underskilled and we no longer have the capacities mm. to do our job. The only way we can deliver good policy is by contracting it out to mm. uh, private uh, consultants. Um, so not so much um, those partnerships, but co-design co says, well, you know, if you're thinking of improving the way debts are raised uh, in social security, uh, how about uh, you co-design, work with welfare rights centres, legal aid commissions, and and actual social security clients to mm. find out, um, you know, how things really work uh, um, in the overpayments and debt recovery um, uh, space. Mm. And, um, you know, on the basis of that broad consultation, uh, think about, you know, what programs or changes or uh, need to be developed. But, yeah, it's really fundamental stuff about mm. um, the uh, degrading of the uh, capacity of the Commonwealth Public Service that I'm most concerned about. And, and I would think, I mean, it's an odd thing to ask people listening to this program to be pushing for. It sounds much easier to press for a Royal Commission or, you know, something sexy like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, actually, I think it's, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts kind of stuff about how we've allowed um, government to um, be denuded, uh, um, to become an em almost an empty shell mm. um, that, uh, that needs thought and attention. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Terry. I appreciate your time today, and I know the listeners will too. Thank you.